Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Today, we're joined by arguably one of the most fascinating women in sustainability and agriculture, Dr. Liz Carlisle. Dr. Carlisle, or Liz as she likes to go by, is a former country singer turned environmentalist who is currently an assistant professor in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara. She received her PhD in geography from UC Berkeley and a BA in folklore and mythology from Harvard University. She has quite the interesting background. Liz has penned several books, and today we're discussing her latest book called Healing Grounds and diving into the connection between our food and farming systems. This eye-opening conversation will encourage you to consider the interconnectedness of everything and how the health of our bodies and the environment are highly correlated to each other and to our agricultural practices. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Liz Carlisle. Well, Dr. Carlisle, Liz, we are so happy to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, we like to start every conversation that we have with the same question, which is, what is your mission here on Earth? Yeah, well, you know, it comes for me from my grandmother who lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl. Mm. And she told me the most beautiful and inspiring stories about growing up as a land steward. And I really saw that in her, her deep connection to land. And I always wanted to kind of recover that for myself and, and for our family. And also there was a piece in there about sort of fixing what was broken, that something was broken about agriculture in the U.S. such that her father overplowed the land and the soil literally blew away. So I think my mission in life is to, you know, recover a land connection, but in a good way that's not extractive and that is reciprocal. Do you think it's possible and we'll get into all the intricacies of farming practices and what it all means. But is there a way to make enough of the right kinds of food in a way that respects the land and builds soil? Like, is it actually possible? Yeah. I mean, actually, that is a question I have no doubt about. And there's all of this great track record of indigenous cultures around the world that definitely have figured this out, sufficient, abundant food in a way that's not extracting from the surrounding environment. So it's not hard for me to kind of see a vivid picture of sort of the destination for society as a whole. I think actually the bigger challenge is how do we get there from where we are and after the history of particularly the last, you know, 400, 500 years. Indeed, because it can seem 
kind of bleak sometimes, you know, as you read about current agricultural practices and how they're contributing to the demise of soil health and therefore food health and therefore human health. So could you talk about the connection a little bit for our listeners, the connection of soil, food and human health? Yeah, I mean, there are there's so many connections there. But basically, you know, the way that we raise our food as a society is probably the most profound way in which we relate to our environment, impact our environment, and of course, the way that our environment impacts us. And I would argue that it's kind of the model through which we engage in the environment in other ways. So our energy system is in some ways modeled on how our food system had already kind of developed in an an extractive direction. So growing and raising food obviously happens in soil and a healthy soil that has a lot of life in it is conducive to growing better crops, more crops, crops that are more nutritious. And at the same time, that soil has a lot of other environmental interactions. And one that people have become really interested in recently is that soil is a big carbon sink. And so this kind of extractive monocultural agriculture over the past couple hundred years has removed a lot of carbon from the soil that's now in the atmosphere. But you could imagine a regenerative agriculture that actually puts some of that carbon back in the soil so that farming, instead of being a climate problem, as it currently is, can be transformed into a climate solution. And soil has a lot of other really important environmental potential benefits too that are also relevant in the context of climate. Here in California, we think a lot about drought and having just less and less moisture and a healthy soil can actually store more water throughout the year to help farmers get through drought and also to to keep farm fields from being waterlogged and flooded. So yeah, I mean, soil, healthy soil is really important to growing a good crop and every farmer knows that. And then it also has these huge environmental implications and a healthy soil is kind of like the fundamental step in a nutrient-rich plant that then brings nutrients into your body. And there's there's so much that I want to dig into there. We definitely need to come back and talk more about the carbon sequestering and that type of thing. But I want you to set the stage for us right now. Like, Why is this a topic of interest right now? Why do we need to be paying attention to it right now that so much that you've written a book about it and you're coming onto our podcast to talk about it. Why is it such an important problem that's happening or an important topic? Yeah. Well, I think as you both raised, there are a number of really important and acute challenges with the food system right now. And they're, they're getting worse. And so this is like this critical inflection point where we need to transform our food system. So we know that a quarter to a third of global greenhouse gas emissions come from food and agriculture as it's currently practiced. Um, one of the big reasons is that as it's currently practiced, food and agriculture is extremely wasteful. So something like 40% of food that's grown never makes it to anybody's plate. And so that leads to a lot of excess greenhouse gas emissions, the methane from the wasted food itself. Then you also think about all the resources that went into growing that food that's not ultimately eaten. So we have these big environmental problems. At the same time, we have huge food security problems. Billions of people in the world who are not getting their food needs adequately met. And it's really because this system is so inefficient and so wasteful and hasn't really been designed around human and environmental health. 
health. And then at the same time, we have a huge economic crisis that's really deeply felt in the farm sector in rural parts of the country. Because again, you know, this is a food system that kind of hasn't been designed to serve the needs of people and the environment. And all of this is sort of getting worse in the context of climate change, <laughs> where farmers are increasingly facing, you know, drought, floods, extreme weather events, changes in temperature that make crops that previously were well suited to their area not very well suited. So there's a lot of kind of problems to fix in the food system, environmental, economic, and then these huge food security and nutrition issues. But, you know, at the same time, I think we have this tremendous opportunity to shift to a food system that's really more agroecological, more about communities determining their own food systems and what they need to look like. And there is so much room for improvement in this food system. And it is, in many ways, one of the arenas in which some of the most promising potential solutions around climate change or public health are available if we sort of transition to a really different kind of central logic underpinning our food system. And I feel like we're jumping all over the place. To get back to this soil question, can you talk about some of the intricacies of what make healthy soil healthy? Like, what does it mean to be good soil and how are current farming practices leaving us with soil, as as your grandmother discussed, that just blows away and can no longer create healthy food and crops? Yeah, this is really great because I think I, I know for myself, I didn't really know that much about soil. I just sort of thought it was dirt, <laughs> you know, growing up. I didn't think about it as an ecosystem, but that's really what it is. There are so many billions of organisms underground interacting with each other. And what we call healthy soil, what we grow plants in, is actually an ecosystem of interacting organisms. And it's that incredible diversity of life and the byproducts of that life that produces an environment in which plants can grow. So a healthy soil is one in which essentially those relationships between plants and their roots and all of those microbes in the soil are connected and functioning so that the plant roots are feeding the microbes, <laughs> the life in the soil is providing nutrients to those plant roots, and, and then plants are healthy. Not only are they sort of getting the nutrients they need to grow, but they're also protected from that system of soil life, from things like disease from things like they have sort of a buffer against drought, that sort of thing. So you might hear a farmer talk about their organic matter, which is kind of a technical term for having a lot of life in the soil. And so the reason why that life has been disrupted with, you know, more extractive industrial agriculture is, for one, a lot of tillage. So that was something that my great grandfather was guilty of, is that sort of early 20th century paradigm of overturning the soil completely in order to prepare a field to be planted and in order to kind of get rid of weeds, which disrupts all of those interactions between microbial organisms in the soil. So it means you release a lot of nutrients once, <laughs> but then you sort of have to rebuild that system of relationships among everything in the soil. And then our sort of conventional and dominant farming systems haven't been designed to keep putting those kinds of nutrients and that life back into the soil. And critically, they haven't been designed to keep roots in the ground all year round, which are key to those soil ecosystems. So if you have a crop that's just planted, say, in the summer, and then the soil is left bare all through the winter, 
first of all, there's going to be physical soil erosion during, you know, rainfall events, maybe snow events. But then there's also nothing feeding the microbes for several months a year. And so those microbial communities aren't going to be able to sustain themselves. So a healthy soil basically requires a farming system that looks more like a natural ecosystem that functions the way that nature farms in a sense. And that's what kind of keeps those relationships underground sustained so that they can provide that fertility to the plants, but also all these ecosystem services we care about, like the carbon sequestration and the water holding. This is such an important point because Whitney and I talk about often that it's very difficult to help consumers understand the importance of quality because you can't see it. And I think people typically think that if a carrot can grow, then a carrot is a carrot. But we know from agricultural databases that over the past hundred years, a lot of our food has lost so much of its nutrient quality and density because of soil erosion. Can you talk about the difference between organic regenerative and regenerative as opposed to conventional farming practices and how that impacts both the soil and therefore the quality of food made? Yeah. And I think you're spot on there. I've heard some folks talk about a sort of conventional agriculture soil paradigm as soil just being the medium the medium in which the plants are grown. And then all of the nutrients are being supplied by inputs that that farmer is purchasing. So a sort of a synthetic fertilizer rather than (laughs) by a sort of ecosystem of life. And so that's the sort of regenerative organic paradigm is the idea that instead of individually supplying nutrients to a plant that's just held in soil as a medium, you're actually taking care of the soil to make sure that that soil ecosystem is able to function naturally. And then the soil feeds the plant. And so you're not just sort of feeding a plant nitrogen out of a bag. (laughs) That plant, when it gets its nitrogen from a biological source, so many other things are coming with it. All these micronutrients, a number of actually, you know, aspects of ecosystems that we don't even fully understand that are part of how a plant is, as you say, not just able to grow, but actually able to be healthy. And I think key when we're talking about nutrition, able to fully develop its plant defense So it's that healthy soil ecosystem that supports plants in developing their natural defense systems against, you know, insects that might prey on them or whatever. But it's those plant defenses that we're understanding in nutrition science that in our bodies are really important in fighting disease and sort of keeping our bodies healthy and protected as well. Yeah, it makes me think that the soil is reflective, like the ecosystem that's going on in the soil is reflective of the ecosystem going on in our own bodies, in our guts. And we are kind of obsessed with microbiome health within our own bodies. And we learn about how different microbes create postbiotics. They consume what goes into your body and then produces these postbiotics, different forms of nutrients that we need, that we're not actually getting it from the food, from the quote-unquote fertilizer that we're taking in, but from these microbes that are within our bodies. And so that's what it sounds like to me that you're talking about, that it's not just the fertilizer going on the soil, but this ecosystem that produces nutrients. Yeah. Which that's super fascinating to me. Yeah, I think that's such an important step is this deep 
recognition, this actual like felt recognition that we're part of a larger ecosystem, including the organisms that live within our own body. What is it like 10% of our DNA is actually human DNA and the rest of it is like mostly microbial. So I think that sense of not just being this isolated individual, but being part of this living ecosystem, I think that's really important to health on a number of levels. You know, it makes me also think about, I remember reading this quote when I was pregnant with my first and it said something like, we'll never have reverence for birthing bodies and mothers until we have reverence for mother earth and like the connection of what it means to respect like the cycle of life and fertile ground. And how do you think we got to this place, like walk us through historically how we went from indigenous populations growing local food to a much more kind of like big ag system that has left us so disconnected, not only from our plates and where our food comes from, but I'd say also like the there's a lack of reverence and respect for what it means to even eat a salad and all the hands that went into making it and all the resources, as you spoke to, that went into creating it. Yeah, I I think that's a really important question, Danielle. And actually, in this book that I've been working on for the last couple of years called Healing Grounds, I've been really digging into colonization as the root cause of the problems in our food and farming system and the root cause of why it's leading to climate change and public health problems. I think a lot of times, and I've been sort of guilty of this too, in a lot of the previous writing I've done about the food system, I kind of treat the root cause as industrialization. And I really focus on the technologies, right? I focus on the plow that my great-grandfather used, or I focus on the development of hybrid seeds and eventually GMO, or I focus on the agricultural chemicals that were developed in large quantities after World War II. And those have all been really important drivers of this shift to a food system that we're more disconnected from in the last hundred years. But the more I've looked into it historically, the more I think those have actually really just built on a logic that really started with processes of colonization. That's where this logic of extracting from an environment and imagining it as being separate from a certain kind of quote unquote civilization, that's where that sort of got started. And the idea of extracting from land and extracting from people, literally enslaving people, removing them from their land, pushing indigenous people off their land, those two forms of extraction were so closely intertwined in history that I think if we're really thinking about how do we reconnect to land in a healthy and good way and feel healthy and whole and part of a reciprocal system of life, That's really about confronting colonization and it ultimately impacts the way that we all interact with each other as human beings too, that we kind of have to unlearn this whole idea of extraction, which is still really critical to the way I think a lot of people imagine what farming is, that you're sort of taking fertility out of the earth (laughs) and that being productive on land means that you're actually like converting those things from the earth into something you sell and you transport it somewhere else rather than this idea of a complete cycle in which ultimately you and the land and the plants are are sort of all going to live together in a place in perpetuity. And the idea that you would sort of take something out of the soil and sort of like build up 
a wealth or, you know, a stockpile is kind of ridiculous when you really think about it. Because where are we going other than the earth, you know? (laughs) Totally. It's like the minute you take something out of the ecosystem, then we end up with this surplus on one side and this place of deficiency on the other side. And then we spend all our time fixing one end or the other instead of just making it cyclical. And so that is kind of the definition of what it means to have a regenerative farming practice, correct? It's this idea of like that cyclicality that everything you take out gets put back in naturally. And I think the reason the word regenerate has really come to the fore of public consciousness is that because there's been this extractive history on this continent, we now need to not just put back everything we take, we need to put back more (laughs) to sort of make up for these many decades of taking. So there are soils right now that have one or 2% organic matter that could potentially have 5%. That's sort of carbon-rich organic matter. And so we're in this moment historically where we really need to focus on the idea of, of giving back um, to land before we can sort of expect it to then be in this kind of ongoing cycle. Today, we are so excited to tell you about our newest product launch. Whitney, drumroll, please. Woo-hoo. Our super seed and nut blends. We set out to create the perfect, clean, protein-rich snack to help satisfy hunger between meals or at mealtime and provide a healthy snack to support you when you're on the go. We've created three delicious blends that are seasoned with all organic, of course, and natural ingredients, air-roasted, without oil, and these come in three functional flavors. Anti-inflammatory, which is my personal favorite, and it has turmeric, curry, and sea salt, An adaptogenic blend, which has maple, paprika, and ashwagandha. That one's my favorite. And an energy one containing herbs, chlorella, and nutritional yeast, which is also delicious. Mm -hmm. Each bundle contains five individual packets, one for each day of the week to support your busy life. In celebration of this launch, we are offering $15 off your first purchase on Saqqara.com. So please use podcast15 at checkout. We hope you love these super seed and nut blends as much as we do. Oh, and don't forget, each one contains seven to eight grams of pure plant protein. And how does that happen? What does the give back look like? What do farmers need to do? So the give back often looks like planting a soil building cover crop. So, you know, I talked about how sometimes in the wintertime fields will will just be left bare and, and then there could be erosion due to rain and snow and there's no roots in the ground to feed the microbes. So a way to fix that problem is to plant a soil building cover crop. So to plant something, and this is often done over the winter, that's specifically just to feed the soil. It's like a biological fertility strategy. So that's one thing. On a smaller scale, compost or mulch or sort of any kind of input of organic matter that's going to give back that life, that's a really good way for folks to kind of do this at a garden scale or at a small farm scale. People are looking into ways to kind of minimize the impact of their tillage. And then the kind of bigger changes are thinking about 
how do we incorporate more perennial plants? So that's trees, agroforestry, or maybe even just having some perennial pollinator plantings or hedgerows or things like that. And then really thinking about, well, how could we build our whole farming system around more perennial plants and the way that you see in natural ecosystems? How could we make our farming system look more like a natural ecosystem? So, you know, if you're in a forest context, agroforestry, growing, maybe growing some fruit trees or nut trees and having some other plants in the understory, or maybe in some cases it can be appropriate to have animals in the understory. If you're in a prairie, thinking about regenerative grazing and either restoring native herbivores like bison or rotating cattle in patterns that mimic what bison did. So there's kind of like some first steps of how you can give back to the soil. And then there's some kind of longer term of like, well, how do we set up a farming system that sort of designed to continuously give back to the soil on an ongoing basis. And I think that there's a lot of misconception too around this idea that you can just eat one kind of food and therefore fix a system. But the beauty is that they're all interdependent. And this is where we really try and promote not just an abundance of plants only, but connected to that quality plants, because quality plants mean quality farming, which means, as you've mentioned in, in several examples, mean environmental health as well. And I think it's just so important to help people understand that animals are crucial to a regenerative farm, that plants are crucial to a regenerative farm, that it's not eat this one way and therefore do good. It's actually you have to seek out quality food first and foremost. It comes from quality organic and regenerative farms. I think that's a hard concept for people to get behind because it's easier to say just eat plants or I've seen a lot of things of right now like just eat meat. And it's like those are not singular solutions. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Danielle, that it's easy for us to focus on the sort of what are we eating <laughs> rather than the how is it being grown? Because like you said, carrots can be grown in really different ways <laughs> and animals in particular can be raised in really, really different ways. And so, yeah, like sometimes you'll see these charts about what's the climate impact of eating pork versus the climate impact of eating chicken. And the truth is, oh my gosh, it has so much to do with the context of where that pig or that chicken was raised and how that pig or that chicken was raised? Was it in a context where like its waste was contributing to the growth of a plant? <laughs> or was it yeah. in a context where its waste was like volatilizing methane into the atmosphere and polluting the water in communities of color? You know, like those are two very different animals and it's a different act to eat the meat of one of those animals versus the other. Yeah, not to get down this rabbit hole, but it's one of the core reasons why in my studies, I just, I get so frustrated because especially in the study of nutrition, oftentimes it's surveying people. But even in ideal quote, I'm using quotes here, ideal situations where you get to put people in a room and decide what they eat and decide what their inputs are, you're never, nobody's ever talking about quality. So we can be talking about doing a clinical study on quote carrots, which I have not seen. But if someone were to do that and study how carrots impact, let's say, the gut. We're not talking about regenerative carrots from regenerative farms. So therefore, the input is so different. It's so different. It's literally black and white. 
And so until we really start to understand that quality is the most important factor and not just our own health, but the health of the planet either, I just don't see people's habits really changing and therefore their health really changing. So earlier in the podcast, you said you're really hopeful. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about how you see change happening out there. And if so, you know, what is the change? Yeah, I, I think you're right on, Danielle, about the importance of of relationship. And we talked about that a little bit earlier in our conversation, too, that it's really, really hard to eat in a way that's sort of healthy for your body and healthy for the natural world if you don't have a relationship of some kind with that food and where it came from. I think that leads to people being susceptible to this really well-funded marketing <laughs> um, that's all around us and these kind of food environments that steer us not in that direction. So these relationships are really important. And I think what I'm hopeful about is, so I teach at UC Santa Barbara and I meet a lot of young people and there are a lot of young people that are really interested in reconnecting with land and reconnecting with food. There are a lot of communities that have been historically shut out from relationship with land, whether that's indigenous communities that were pushed off their land, folks in the black community who have this really, really loaded history with land because land was the context in which people were oppressed and enslaved. And they were also sort of taken away from the land where they had these longstanding food and agricultural traditions. Folks who've been forced to migrate for a variety of reasons, who maybe have never felt that they belonged on this land or on this soil. And I've seen people from a lot of these different communities that have been disconnected in oppressive ways from land, really advocating strongly for reclaiming that connection and for having access to land and for having food sovereignty in their own communities. And a lot of young people who, for a variety of reasons, didn't grow up in a farming family or with any access to these things, really wanting to be engaged in some way, whether that's a community garden or, you know, a food forest or there's a food co-op, the Isla Vista Food Co-op in the student community here, and a bunch of students are really engaged in that. So I'm hopeful because I do feel like this climate crisis moment that we're in and other crises as well have really spurred people to pursue this reconnection with land and food. There's a lot of kind of structural barriers to overcome, policy barriers, entrenched corporate power, those kinds of things. But I think it's this kind of like massive popular movement that gives the sort of power to actually really transform the relationship that we have with our food and with our land. That's exciting. <laughs> Can you explain a bit more about the role that soil plays in our current carbon crisis, as you mentioned? And... Can you explain how it can play a role in the solution? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you think about the climate problem and kind of like zoom way out, <laughs> we know that carbon dioxide is a really serious greenhouse gas. There's actually a couple others that are really concerning, methane and nitrous oxide that come from nitrogen, not carbon. But the basic idea is, you know, all of these elements, they have to be somewhere. And so the problem is too much of them are in the atmosphere right now. And that's mostly because stuff that used to be underground got dug up and volatilized into the atmosphere. So what do we do about that now? Well, it can either go back into the soil 
or can go into the ocean. The ocean is a natural carbon sink, but there's issues right now with ocean warming and ocean acidification. So obviously we have to stop digging up things that should be underground and volatilizing them into the atmosphere. So we have to stop using fossil fuels as the basis of our energy system. But we also want to think about Okay, through agriculture, a lot of carbon has been volatilized in the atmosphere, just too much plowing released it, not having roots in the ground year round has released it. We've also seen nitrous oxide be lost to the atmosphere that way. So what are the ways in which we can use plants to actually (laughs) draw that carbon out of the atmosphere through their roots and return it underground? So can we use that soil carbon sink and get it back up to some fraction of sort of where it was a couple few hundred years ago. And carbon's also important for farming, right? The farmers need this carbon for their plants. It's a natural part of the growing process. Plants take in carbon in order to grow. And so I also think about how we're kind of moving into this world of carbon capture. A lot of companies are getting massive amounts of funding right now in order to produce carbon capture systems that take the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the earth in between rocks and whatnot. What do you think about that process? Do you believe that farming on its own is enough? If we all move toward this more regenerative style of farming, could that be enough? Are you concerned about carbon capture? Just what are, what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a really great point with that. Now we see all of these kind of like high tech solutions to mimic plants. One of them is actually called artificial trees. <laughs> so there's an attempt. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. To sort of mimic this process that plants have been doing throughout their evolutionary history, because there's a concern about sort of doing this fast enough, drawing enough carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the ground fast enough. I mean, I'm supportive of research into those things. And I I think it's important to sort of keep in mind that we're trying a lot of things for the first time on the sort of technological side of carbon capture and storage. Whereas plants have this like pretty incredible track record. They've been here a lot longer than we have as people. (laughs) They're really good at what they do. And like you said, there are also all these co-benefits. So if we utilize plants to draw carbon out of the atmosphere and then through their roots, cycle it through the soil, there's a lot of good things that come of that beyond just the carbon storage that we also need to do if we're going to be resilient in a time of climate change. And so I'm always a fan of like drawing on the genius of evolution whenever possible and sort of acknowledging that we have a limited understanding of how all of these ecological processes work. We definitely want to continue to support research to to continue to improve that understanding. But at the same time, let's draw on the genius of these plants because they can accomplish things even without us fully understanding the mechanisms through which they're accomplishing them because we can see the sort of evolutionary track record of them having done those things. So I I think we should go all in on a strategy of utilizing the genius of plants to rebalance carbon systems. Agriculture is a really important place to do that just because of how much of the land surface of the earth is in agriculture or is sort of like abandoned agricultural lands. 
And it's also a chance kind of on the human side of all of this. It's a chance for us as people to be part of the solution and to just imagine ourselves as part of a balanced planet, which I think is really, really important if we're going to engage in more abstract efforts to actually have this be like part of how we not only see ourselves, but actually experience ourselves. (laughs) And yeah, planting in a garden or something like that, it can just change the way you see your whole place in the world in ways that I think are really, really important for all of us tackling climate more broadly. Right. That goes back to your original mission about that land connection right? Just feeling connected back to the planet and our purpose and our place here. And a lot of the indigenous folks who I've had the incredible privilege of talking to through my book and some other pieces that I've written, they keep coming back to this idea of land as a relative and also plants as relatives and also animals as relatives and periodically bring up how would you treat your relative? And I think that's actually a super important shift in terms of if you get to that point with your garden and maybe if that garden is a kitchen garden for you where you actually feel that this is something you're taking care of and that really matters and it's also giving you something important, then you think differently about everything you're doing. Like you think differently about that plastic water bottle you just bought yesterday and whether you can reuse it. Or So I think it's that shift that's really important is how do we get beyond this kind of like mindless extraction to really seeing that we are in relation to all these other beings on the planet and sort of really wanting to be in these cycles of care with those other beings rather than just seeing them as an it. I'd love to, on that note, hear what your light work is for all of our our listeners. Yeah. Well, I mean, since, I mean, you all are a community of people who are like really intentional about your food. And I think that's a really great place to start. And so maybe the light work is just getting really curious about a food you love and where does it come from? Who, if it's a plant, like who stewarded the seeds of this plant over generations? If it's an animal who sort of bred this animal over generations to the point where it became this food that you love, what land does it come from? And then thinking about how you can then give back to that food that you love and be in a reciprocal relationship with it and sort of demonstrate your gratitude, even if it is actually a a practice of saying thank you to that food. But maybe that extends to thinking about how you take care of what it needs to thrive. I love that. It's beautiful. I love that because I think that we're so disconnected from our plate that we, like I noticed myself, if you go to the grocery store and you're looking for bananas and they're out of bananas, you're like, oh man, like really thinking about, you know, all that had to go into like what a miracle grocery stores are. What a miracle. Think about the journey of the banana. Yeah, that a cigar delivery gets to you with, you know, 180 different ingredients from all over the world and all different farmers and really thinking of ourselves as part of that ecosystem, not the beneficiary to the ecosystem. Mm, Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Liz, thank you so much. It's fascinating what you're working on. And I'm so grateful there are people like you out there 
doing this work. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for taking time away from this incredible multi-state operation that you two are running. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good word for it. (laughs) Beautiful. Really, I really enjoyed being in conversation with you. Yeah. Thanks. Ditto. Thanks so much. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Mm-hmm.